Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Keep cool and you'll command everyone, is a quote from Justinian I, traditionally known as Justinian the Great, the Eastern Roman Emperor, whose reign marked the blossoming of Byzantinian culture. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, who studied medieval history, translated lessons from the past, and has been able to bridge the divide between the Silk Road to Silicon Valley. Our guest today is Sam Weiss, chairman of software company Altium, a company with a share price that has grown by a multiple of 35 since he joined the board. Sam is also the chair of 3P Learning Limited. Hello, and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, managing partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Sam shares with us his early experience as an executive in New York, his insights during his time with sports giant Nike, and how he made the transition to the boardroom. We discuss how he approaches the role of director and chairman and where you should spend your time, as well as gain the perspective of the international technology markets and what he believes is the future for the technology industry. So sit back and enjoy. Focus on what's important. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be here. So you grew up in New Jersey. What was that like? Well, it was um, 50s and 60s, very suburban. Uh, Manhattan was only 20 miles away, but it was as if it was another world. And I had that carefree life of out on the bike with my friends all day long. And uh, my mother didn't worry about us until it was dinner time. College, and then you went, you went to a Harvard, from what I understand. I did. I did. What did you study there? Well, I studied medieval history, which um, seems a bit unusual these days, uh, but I went to Harvard thinking I wanted to study American history, which I was fascinated with. Yep. And I had a professor, um, never forget his name, Ed Herlihy, yep. and he talked about medieval Italy as if it were yesterday, and I was just fascinated by that and changed my concentration to medieval history and thoroughly enjoyed it, although to be completely accurate, I was a pretty indifferent student and spent most of my time in the theater. Which you still have a passion for. From I, still, I still do. Yeah. Um, and the theater was a fantastic training ground because I was the producer of The Hasty Pudding Show, which is uh, an original musical comedy that's created every year at Harvard, written by the undergraduates, 
performed by the undergraduates until literally either this year or last year. For 150 years, the cast was all men. And as you can imagine, that became more and more politically incorrect. So finally, women are in the cast. But we had our own theater. We put the show on for a month in Cambridge and then took it on the road to New York and Bermuda, financed the whole thing through ticket sales. We had the appearances on the Today Show. So it was a big deal when I was you know, a 20-year-old kid um, running. You know, This was almost 50 years ago, and it was a, I still remember it was something like a $100,000 budget. So why am I sitting here in front of a Hollywood director as opposed to, an indie, well, <laughs> as opposed to a chairman of a yeah. uh, technology company? Well, you should ask. And I got married within uh, two years of graduating. You got married within two years of graduating? With, yeah, wow. literally. I, was, I met my wife when I was 22, was married two years later. Wow. And she encouraged me, and I went to the Schubert Brothers, which is a big theatrical organization, still the biggest in New York, and they said they would give me a job, but working in the theater means you're basically working every night until midnight, and I just thought that wouldn't be a good thing for me at the time, so gave up the musical theater and went into retail. Talk us through that. Well, it seems kind of odd, but um, coming out of uh, medieval history and studying um, beginning of double-entry bookkeeping in um, Venice, so I had an interest in uh, business. And secondly, retail struck me as the closest thing to show business that you could do in the commercial world. I just loved the idea of being able to put you know, merchandise, it's almost like putting together a show, what a buyer could do in those days, buying the product, putting it out on the floor, and finding out literally every morning how well you did. There was something called Beat Yesterday, and the store would keep track of your department's performance on the same day this year versus last year. How was the pressure? The pressure was intense. In fact, I had a boss then who really set me on my path, and he would say to me, Sam, you're not smiling today. And, you know, when you lose your smile, everybody knows, and it, your smile is really a valuable thing. So don't succumb to the pressure. I remember once I was in early, it was uh, December, and the uh, chairman of the board called me up. He said, I'm in my hotel room in Houston or Dallas, I'm shaving and um, looking at your figures for yesterday, and I'm desperately looking around my desk for the figures, and we had no sales in Dallas that day. Right. And he said, what's, what's wrong? And I fortunately had the um, presence of mind to remember that it had been a once-in-a-century snowstorm in Dallas <laughs> that day, and <laughs> nobody did any business. But retail is relentless. Retail detail, isn't it? Yeah, and... In those days, the internet was way off in the future. So what were you selling, Sam? I was hired as a, the fourth assistant buyer, and you know, they, they didn't get too many trainees out of Harvard, so it was a bit of a celebrity, which was neither here nor there for me. But within six months, I was promoted to the uh, become the buyer of uh, bedspreads and comforters, which is uh, American for Dunas. Okay, yeah, yeah. And uh, the uh, vice chairman said to me one day, we've just hired this woman from Bloomingdale's who's going to be the sheet buyer, which is the senior role. 
And uh, he said, uh, you're going to love her. So, of course, um, she came in a month later and uh, started talking to her. And she she had the office. I had a little bench outside the office because she was senior to me. She'd also gone to Harvard, but she had gone not only to Harvard College, but also Harvard Business School. At any rate, we sort of started talking, and within a couple of months, we'd fallen in love and right. told um, the vice chairman. Well, your boss was right then. <laughs> we said, well, you, you didn't know what you, what you were saying. And uh, then I got hauled into the, the chairman's office, and he said, we can't have you and your wife working together. So uh, we're going to make you the women's better sweater buyer. So uh, all of a sudden, I was buying cashmere sweaters for one of the most famous women's department stores in the U.S. And that was instructive to me because I realized I didn't really like the retail business, but I loved the um, home furnishings business. And I went to see a, another guy who uh, became a mentor to me, who was the uh, president of the Spring Made Sheet Business, which was one of, I guess it was the largest home furnishings business in the U.S. And he said, well, you're never going to learn anything in retail. So why don't you come here, get a real job, and we'll teach you something. And I worked at uh, what was called Springs Industries then for uh, almost 15 years. And it, it was a phenomenal education. And they sent me to business school, which okay. I was really um, grateful for. Sent us to uh, London as a young family, and I had an opportunity to learn about international business. And then uh, back to New York, where I ran a little um, upholstery fabric business. Um, and then one day, I got the fateful phone call from a guy, and I was sitting on the 40th floor of a New York office building, minding my own business. And he said, I'm a headhunter. You would know this kind of call, Greg. And you don't know me, but I'm working for a company in Australia, and we'd like to talk to you about a job as the managing director. And I said, well, the only company I know in Australia makes Sheridan Bedlin. And he said, well, that's the company. And off you came. Off we came. What made you come? Well, I remember distinctly, our son was I don't know, six or seven. He had some football game and in New York, when you play football, he went to a school where the soccer pitch was on the roof of the building. So I go back uptown because we lived in New York, met my wife on the side of the this football pitch with the little kids kicking a ball around, and um, said, oh, I had this call from a headhunter about a job in Australia. And she said, well, I don't really have any interest in even visiting Australia, let alone living there. So um, I thought, well, that's that. But he was very persistent right. and gave us, um, after a while, they asked us to come out here, both of us, for a week. And uh, we walked around Paddington. It was mm -hmm. August, beautiful. And uh, my wife turned to me and said, you know, this place is pretty good. Even if you don't get the job, maybe we should think about moving here. And the football fields are on the ground as opposed to the roof. Exactly right. They've obviously tapped you on the shoulder because you must have been good at what you were doing. This day and age, we talk about understanding the customer. You winded back all those years when you got, blo you got blooded, you know, right in front of the customer every day of the week and been measured by the customer every day of the week. Has much really changed, Sam? Is it just because digital has come in? It's the is it the same motivations by it the is customer? absolutely the same thing. So many companies take customers for granted. I think that you can really understand the health of an enterprise 
by checking the pulse of the customers, whether they like the product, the service, or even you know, do they like doing business with you. One of the mantras we have at Altium is that we're the easy-to company, uh, easy to do business with, our products are easy to use, and they're affordable. But even with a relatively, I think, good relationship with the average engineer, yep. we still take them for granted. And one of the things our chief executive is now onto is to get our engineering team, who historically have basically followed the model of, well, you know, if we make it, it will be good and therefore people should use it. And, yep. and the CEO is saying, no, we really need to engage with customers and find out not only what they do like, but the things that we could do better. And you know I, that's been true my entire career. One of the things that astonished me at Nike... So when was Nike? Well, we came to Australia, went, went to work for the company that made Sheridan Bed Linen. Yep. It was a fantastic introduction to this country. And within three years, we were Australian citizens, uh, which we were very grateful for. And then when things didn't work out with textile industries, oh, yes. Australia, we decided to stick around, which is when I got into technology, because my wife and I bought into a CD-ROM company just before the internet. That was a lot tougher than I thought it would be. And in fact, I learned a very good lesson, because after 20 years in the corporate world, I decided that I should see what kind of entrepreneur I was. Uh, which is why we bought into this um, CD-ROM company. And it didn't take me very long to realize I was a pretty lousy entrepreneur. My wife, who, as I mentioned, was a Harvard MBA, came in. The two of us were working round the clock, talking about it at home. Our kids thought we'd gone round the twist. Yeah, right. And uh, within a month, two things happened. Firstly, we were able to sell the company. And secondly, I had a call from a headhunter to see if I was interested in a job at Nike in Australia, which would have been terrific. But I started talking to Nike, and then it was Hong Kong, and then finally, and these were the days of fax machines. A fax came in one morning, said, uh, we'd like you to move to Stockholm and set up a uh, Eastern European retail business. So this was 1996. Right. My uh, kids were teenagers. They very helpfully did a weather chart for me and my wife to demonstrate that in June, in the middle of winter here in Australia, it was warmer than Stockholm in summer, and had we lost our minds. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, they came along. We had a, a fantastic time. And so you did the move. Yeah, we moved to Stockholm. And you know, Nike was a wonderful company because the cash was just gushing in at that point. Literally um, could do no wrong. And it was still early days relatively, so they were, and particularly in Europe, because uh, Nike had stayed out of Eastern Europe until the wall came down. Yep. So there were no stores in Eastern Europe. So they initially thought, well, the way we'll get in is to open our own stores. And I spent a year looking at that, and I finally recommended to the CEO uh, and a group of others that this was just not a good thing for Nike to be doing because at that time it had no retail expertise. Of course, that's very different today. At any rate, um, so I thought that would be the end of it and my short Nike career would be over. But I got a call from the guy who ran Europe from, he was based in the corporate headquarters, and he said, we'd uh, like you to take over as head of Eastern Europe, not just retail. 
because the guy running it had gotten himself into trouble in uh, Slovenia overnight one night with the secret police and a woman who he probably shouldn't have been with. Mm -hmm. So that was an incredible opportunity. And then I was made um, chief operating officer of Nike Europe, and we moved to the Netherlands where the corporate headquarters were. So what was the magic of Nike? My view is that really great companies are based on very simple premises. And the Nike premise is to make products that improve the performance of athletes. And they had a test. If the product could be worn by an athlete and help his or her performance, it could go into the line. We used to walk by Adidas shops where they'd had perfume with Adidas on it. And yeah. we'd laugh ourselves silly that, you know, how is this going to help Michael Jordan score basketball goals? So that premise that the product had to be something that an athlete would wear was at the center of Nike. Now, the fact that you might wear them on the weekend or all day long, that was just an added benefit. So it wasn't going in the line if it didn't have some performance attribute. Sam, who was the biggest sports star that you worked with? I think this answer will surprise you because I opened up um, Nike Town London with Michael Jordan. And uh, the two of us each made a speech. And of course, he's got phenomenal applause and mine got <laughs> uh, polite applause. And he's a larger than life um, uh, character. We invited Kathy F um, Freeman to that opening and she was an incredibly uh, nice woman and in fact later married one of my colleagues at, at Nike. So so that was um, pretty exciting. And then uh, I was in Moscow once uh, because we sponsored the um, Russian team and uh, Brazil was out to play a friendly and so I hung out with Ronaldo in the bar um, after the game and he was um, you know, just an incredibly nice young guy. But by far the one that made the biggest impression on me was when we opened Nike Town Berlin and we had invited Michael Schumacher oh, yeah. to do the opening. And Michael was wearing these red um, shoes that we made. They were custom made, fireproof, and very thin soles so he could feel the uh, the, 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 the foot uh, pedals um, in the car. Yeah. So um, in, in a retail store, you have tiny little offices because you want all of your space to be to sell products. So I go up to the top floor to the um, manager's office, and I'd been there you know, uh, all through the construction and knew my way around. And there's this um, very unassuming guy sitting outside the um, manager's office. So I figure this is the accountant or the, the guy <laughs> who handles stuff for uh, Schumacher. And I, I said, um, you know, are you waiting to see uh, uh, Georg, who's the store manager? And he said, oh, yes, yes, I'm here for the open. Opening, and um, I introduced myself. He said, oh, I'm Michael Schumacher. And uh, he was the most down-to-earth, nicest guy you could imagine meeting. So um, we talked about what we were going to do. And at that store, we had this uh, sort of balcony that overlooked the main floor. And so we decided that I would go out on the balcony and then introduce him. And so there was this pandemonium mob scene in the store. And when I said, and now we're going to be joined by Michael Schumacher, the people started stamping their feet and screaming. And I thought that the building was going to collapse. And the uh, the 
Uh, applause for Michael Schumacher made Michael Jordan look like just some ordinary guy. I mean, right. it was as if God had walked into Nike Town, Berlin. He was just amazing. And and so the the difference between the public um, enthusiasm for him and his demeanor, I'd never seen anything so dramatic. Now, Fast forward a few years, back, left um, Nike, left Michael Schumacher behind, and we went to the Melbourne Grand Prix because one of our very close friends is the number two guy in Form- Formula One worldwide, okay. based out of um, London and Paris. And so he uh, came out for the uh, race and said, well, you, you got to come. So we went down and he took us into the little tiny booth that they build for the guys who manage um, the race operations and they have microphones to talk to the riders. And we go in and I heard one of them saying, now if you do that again, you are dead. You are toast. We are going to throw you out of here so fast your head will spin. Now, Michael, I'm not going to tell you again. If you pull that stunt on this track you're through and and the guy on the other end saying oh yes sir no i won't do that again and that was michael schumacher you know sort of pushing his way from lane to lane and the stewards just read him the riot act yeah so very mild-mannered in a business suit but you put him into a flame-proof suit you know behind the wheel and he was a terror so sam were you reporting directly to phil knight no, Greg. Uh, I mean, that would have been um, nice, but uh, I reported to this terrific guy named Martin Coles, who unfortunately passed away a year or so ago. Uh, but I did get to um, spend time with um, Phil Knight, and I learned a lot from not only from him personally, but from his leadership style. And in fact, I've used um, some of these things at, at Altium, which of course is a you know, complete opposite end of the spectrum from um, Nike. But I, I took Aram uh, Mirkazemi, the um, CEO of Altium, and, and one of our other directors up to Nike a year or so ago uh, to talk to people there about the Nike experience. But it, at any rate, a um, couple of instructive things about Phil. Uh, the first was that he, um, as a leader, he didn't really like to run the day-to-day nitty-gritty. So there was a another guy whose title wasn't CEO, but basically ran the business, and, the, and that was um, Tom Clark. And if you ever wanted to spend any time with Tom, the easiest thing to do was to go out for a run with him. But he'd been a near-champion runner, so a guy like me, who was a very average runner, uh, by the time we got back to the hotel, I'd be practically dead <laughs> from trying to keep up with Tom. But it, at any rate, so what... what Phil Knight used to do was focus on some of the bigger, more strategic things. So there are two that um, I remember. The first was uh, Nike was trying to get into football in a real way to compete with Adidas, which is really challenging. And so Knight announced one day that he had signed Brazil, 100 million bucks. And um, Nike Brazil, you know, the total business is couple million. So he said, and, and the European group and the U.S. group are going to pay for it. And, you know, the deal at that time was that you only paid for the athletes or the teams in your country. And he said, well, 
we can't afford Brazil if you guys don't pay for it. And particularly to the Europeans, he said, you want to be good in football? Well, then this will help. Mm. Uh, so everybody bitched and moaned, but Nike is now um, at the same level as Adidas. And then the second thing he did, which really astonished me, was uh, he – and I, was, I, mean, I wasn't physically – next to him when this happened, but he came in one day and said, well, we've signed this young golfer, a uh, hundred million bucks, but I think he's going to be good. And that was Tiger Woods before he'd won anything. hundred million. hundred million bucks, which Nike made back, I don't know, a hundred times over. The time I really got to work with Phil Knight, which again was instructive to me to learn about um, really toughness in business. So yeah, okay. um, when... Nike went into Europe. It, it was a young, immature company. It couldn't afford to go direct, so it had distributors. And um, in Spain, somehow, there was another com a little, t lit literally tiny little company was selling Nike socks because they had a sock factory. Mm -hmm. And Nike didn't um, wasn't careful about registering its trademark. And this company said, and by this time Nike was a you know, billion-dollar business and direct in all of Western Europe and starting to go, as I mentioned, in Eastern Europe. Um, so this little company sued Nike, and it went all the way up to the European, uh, the highest court in Europe. And I was the chief operating officer, and the general counsel um, reported to me, and we lost. We lost. We lost. So that meant that we couldn't use the Nike name on apparel in Spain, which you know, by itself was probably a $100 million business 20 years ago. And I, so for a better part of a year, every week I went to Madrid uh, with either on my own or with the general counsel trying to work out how we were going to settle with this guy. Right. And we got to a point where it was clear he would settle, but his number was uh, was way over what we could agree to. So I flew to Beaverton and had breakfast with my boss and with Phil Knight, and he's listening to it, and I'm thinking, oh, well, he's going to say okay. And, you know, it was $20 million or something to get back our trademark and brand name. And we're in a, the Nike um, uh cafeteria and he goes damn it i'm not going to give him a nickel you tell him to go screw themselves and we so i didn't tell him that but, <laughs> um so we started making nike apparel in spain without the nike name on it is that right yeah and you know i've never asked what happened i i assume that nike has eventually gotten its name back but i uh, at the time I left, we we did not have the rights to Nike in Spain. But Phil Knight just – he would have settled earlier and he would have settled for a lower number. But he just said, these guys, they're in the wrong and uh, not going to do it. Just changing gears now. Hiring people in that part of the world. And an American coming in working across Eastern Europe. What are you looking for? First of all, at Nike, if you didn't love sports, it was a very tough place to work. And that, it didn't matter whether you were uh, an American, a European, Chinese. And secondly, it didn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. So we look for people who love sports. We look for people who we thought had leadership potential. And they had to speak English. 
You're right. Because our global language was English. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't mind if within their own countries they spoke their native language, but communicating across the world. And, you know, emails were now the standard of communication. So English was a prerequisite. And were you successful? We were enormously successful. And within a couple of years, uh, because the first thing we did was appoint distributors, usually family businesses. But by the time I left, uh, four or five years after I started, we were converting. I think we did Nike Hungary first, then Poland, then Yugoslavia. So now virtually every country in Europe is Nike-owned with locals running it. For um, We had a lot of Americans in Hilversum, which was the corporate headquarters. But I think it would be fair to say that days of the big U.S. companies sending out expatriates is not over because it helps to have global movement of people, but you don't need to have a hundred Americans telling the locals how to run the place. And how were the Eastern Europeans adapting to this whole thing, you know, the growth of the consumer? Growth Fantastic. West, West, I mean, the, business, the, the, land the, of opportunity. The malls went up almost before your eyes. I would go, you know, take Prague, go, you know, in March and back in June and the mall had been built. So, right? so they went from virtually no retail to a consumer economy almost overnight. It's history in the making. Yeah, it really was. What came next? I loved working at Nike. I mean, I be, wouldn't be honest if I didn't say that. Mm. But it was a huge challenge, constantly going from Hilversum to Beaverton, which is outside of Portland, Oregon, right. where my boss was. We had video cameras and big TV screens. You know, this was 1999, 2000. So he would come into his office at 7 in the morning in Portland, and it was 4 in the afternoon in Hilversum, and he'd turn on his TV, and I'd turn on my TV, and, you know, his day was starting. So, you know, it'd be nothing for me to get home at 7 or 8 o'clock. Mobile phones were ubiquitous. Yeah, right. And, you know, we traveled all the time all over Europe, and I— I remember saying to my wife, Judy, we were driving from Amsterdam to Paris for the weekend. You know, it sounds like this magical life. But I said to her, I have no life. I'm just completely consumed with this job. And as much as I loved it, I realized it wasn't the best thing for the family. Our two kids were at boarding school in the UK. So we decided to come back to um, Sydney. Big move. It was a very big move. My boss was really broken up about it. He was desperate for the Nike Australia people to find a job for me, but that didn't work out, so I came back uh, without a position. You came back, Sam, but you've also came back, continued as a, an executive, but also started to move into NED land. Well, that's exactly right, because I came back here without a job, mm-hmm. and I had a, a friend who... Um, had been an activist. He was the local head of Greenpeace, and he became famous here because he chained himself to the outflow into Sydney Harbor of some uh, waste from a production facility. He had this epiphany at Greenpeace that the solution to these environmental problems was not protesting. It was to work with companies to solve problems because at that time, triple bottom line was the sort of mantra, but he said, it's not about triple bottom line. Good practice in environmental behavior is good for your bottom line, period, and your profits will 
improve. Mm-hmm. At any rate, he got promoted as a very young man out of this little backwater in Australia to become the global head of Greenpeace in right. um, Europe, about the same time we were living there. And uh, he ran afoul of the Germans with this idea that um, working with big business was better than fighting big business, and they threw him out. Right. For him, that was his first lesson on what matters in a boardroom, because the Germans had the votes inside of Greenpeace. So he said, well, if I really believe this, I'm going to come back to Australia and set up a consulting business to work with corporate Australia on how to implement environmentally uh, sustainable practices that will be good for your bottom line. And he was an immediate success. So when I came back here, he had 20 people. They were billing out five or $10 million. And one of our other friends said to me, the place is a mess internally. They're giving advice, and at this point they were advising DuPont, Ford Motor Company. Uh, he was flying over to see Jack Nasser all the time. But internally they could barely make the payroll, not because they didn't have the money, because they didn't have the systems. Okay. And so I sat down with him and said, well, I'm, I don't have anything to do. So I started working with him as a advisor and um, before long became a partner with him, a much smaller partner than he was, and we ran that business for a decade. But the siren song of the corporate world was too strong for me. And my boss at Nike, the one who was desperate for me to stay there, had left and gone to um, Gateway Computers. Yep. And uh, he called me up one day and said, uh, we need somebody to run Asia. And the headquarters for Gateway was in Singapore, but he said, you know, you can stay in Sydney if you want to. So I flew over to San Diego and met all the guys at the senior management team and seemed like a good opportunity, and I took it. Unbeknownst to me, the computer business at the time was just brutal. Prices for a, a laptop were around $1,000, and they were going down 1% a week because this was when Intel was coming out with a new chip every six, 12 months. And so you constantly had to be coming out with new product. And it was a complete mugs game. These thousand dollar boxes had in it about $25 of our factory manufacturing cost, $600 for um, an Intel chip and a couple hundred dollars for Microsoft software. And you know, so our margins were under 10%. Yeah, right. And, you know, all the money was going to Intel and Microsoft. And I don't begrudge them that, but the fact that they got somebody else to make the computers and sell them for them is amazing. But it, Gateway had a fundamental flaw, and it was started at the same time as Dell Computers. So Michael Dell, and I later became very friendly with one of his early executive hires, Dell realized um, in the 90s that the secret to dealing with this constant innovation and reducing price environment was to have the very best supply chain possible. Right. So he hired a bunch of guys from Motorola, and they got their manufacturing time down to four days, whereas Gateway... Where where are they being manufactured, Sam? They they set up a big factory in Shenzhen, China. They were the first player into Shenzhen. Whereas Gateway felt that marketing was the solution. And so they had the cow boxes and they didn't pay any attention to supply chain. And, you know, you never knew when you were going to get the computer if you ordered one. And they went into their own retail stores. At any rate, by 2001, 
it was clear that Dell had won comprehensively. And uh, you know, within a year of my starting, I get the phone call that the executives had met in San Diego at the corporate headquarters, and they were shutting down the entire world other than the U.S. and Canada. Right. Which, if you're making socks, it's not so hard. You close the factory, you ship whatever orders you have, and that's it. With computers, uh, we had, I don't know, 30 or 40 stores. We had a factory in Malaysia. We had warehouses all over Asia. And we had contracts to maintain computers for some, you know, a year, three years. And in Japan, we had contracts for life. And when we got lawyers to look at the contracts, we weren't sure whether the contracts were for the life of the computer or the life of the guy who bought it. At any rate, it took me a year to shut it down, a year to find a company that was willing to take over all this because there were a million machines under warranty. And uh, at the end of that year, I knew that I definitely wanted to have a non-executive life. I'd really enjoyed the – because I'd stayed on in this little consulting business. And it gave me the um, fortitude because I was getting paid by Gateway, but I had a lot of time to put the time and energy into starting to build a board portfolio. For most of my career, I responded to opportunities as opposed to sitting down and thinking through what I would like to do. So you're not a planner in that sense? Well, I wasn't. And now when I advise younger people, I am very clear, know what you want in life. My wife was always very good at that. She said, you need to sit down and decide what you want to do. Don't just wait for something to come along. But I'm a very slow learner. It took me, uh, I don't know, the better part of 25 years to learn that. Obviously, you made the decision then, Sam. You started planning on yeah, to build so a exactly. career. It was All the right. first real personal career decision that I had made in terms of what's good for me and where can I be good in, in my career. Because if I'm honest with myself, I had a successful executive career and I was good at it, but I wasn't great at it. Okay. And I saw what great looked like, particularly at Nike, because yep. I, I worked with a group of guys, and you know they were all men, who went on to lead Nike, the main company, over the next 20 years. And the guy that I sat next to, and we shared a secretary and had a common meeting room between our offices, mm. went on to become the president of Nike. Right. But I could tell watching him act in Europe that this was a guy who was just way in front of me in terms of his capabilities as an executive. I also knew then that I was pretty good at helping people be more successful in their jobs than they might have otherwise been, just by encouraging them, maybe inspiring them a little, and giving them the confidence to go out and do the job, and some protection, I used to call it guide rails, so that they could go down the highway at speed and you know, if they got to the edge, they didn't drive off into a ditch. They just bounced off the guide rail and stayed on the road. So I was pretty confident that I would be reasonably good as a non-executive director, but it, it took a while to build a portfolio. So the first thing you've got is self-awareness. I acquired that the hard way. Yeah, but it sounds like uh, your view is like a lot of great sports people. They're good to a point, and then there's, there's the outstanding ones, and the good ones may become fantastic coaches. 
It sounds like you've taken that approach when you've gone into your NED career where you understand how talent works and spots talent. But okay, so you're taking that, Sam. You're then going to the market. What type of boards were you looking for? Well, I wanted to do things that I had a level of um, comfort and experience in because I thought that's where I could add value. Okay. So I wanted a, a sports company because that was had become a real passion for me. And I was fortunate enough through my Nike connections meet the owners of Canterbury, the old New Zealand rugby company, and yep. was appointed to that board and had a five-year run with them, which you know was terrific. But it turned out to be too difficult to turn around Canterbury. There was just too many legacy problems, and we sold the business to uh, JD Sports in um, the UK. Yep. But I also had a real love for retail. And yep. again, I knew somebody at Oriton. I always advise people getting on boards takes time. And it, mm. I think from start to finish, uh, it took about two years. And then I was appointed to the Oriton board. And I was on that board for 13 years. And again, it was a, a fantastic experience. You talk about harnessing enthusiasm, don't you? Yeah. What does that actually mean from a board director's point of view? Well, first of all, in a boardroom where you can spend a lot of time talking about problems and talking about risk and talking about all of the things that either might go wrong or have gone wrong. It's really helpful to remember why you're there in the first place, which is to represent the shareholders and to add value to the company. And in my view, directors add far less value by second-guessing management or asking tricky questions to show they've read the papers and far more value if they are in an environment where they understand the business, are supportive of the management, but not to the point where they can't see the forest for the trees yeah, right. and can help management to do a better job than they might be doing on their own. And secondly, the best directors have both networks and experience. So if something comes up, you can say, well, have you thought about this? Or you should. it might be a good idea to go talk to so-and-so because he's been through that before and could be helpful to you. And doing that with a positive attitude and a smile on your face that yep. um, Henry Laskin taught me about 40 years ago. Speaking of smile on your face, you must have a smile on your face with the success of Altium. Can you talk us through that journey? That's a good example of both good fortune, good timing, and just sheer luck. One of your um, erstwhile competitors who shall go nameless in this room called me up one day and said there's a technology company that is looking for non-executive directors, and they want a director who has international experience, and they don't expect you to know the space they're in, but it would be helpful for an incoming director to know something about technology. Okay. So I felt like I fit those two bills mm -hmm. and um, got to meet the company and uh, realized that I literally didn't know anything about printed circuit boards and the software to design them. But I liked the guys that I met, and I had this intuitive feeling that it was a company that had potential that, for whatever reason, hadn't been realized. And so... I was interested, and when they offered me the job, I was very pleased to take it. But well, why do you think they put the bet on you? Like you said, you didn't know about circuit boards, et cetera. So yeah, well, why? fortunately, there was, they, they weren't going to find anybody who knew printed circuit boards. So okay. that wound up not being a negative. 
I think the fact that I'd done some research on the company and that I was enthusiastic about the journey that they wanted to go on got me over the uh, over the line. So where were our team? Do you want to talk us through the scale of the operation, the numbers at the time compared to where it is now? Well, it was a uh, it had listed in 99 and this was 2006. It was a small company but global. Most of the revenue was outside of Australia. They had a very strong customer base, some 20,000 engineers, but it was clear that there was something that wasn't quite clicking. And so, you know, they would make the numbers but not make any money. And the management team in Australia weren't talking to the sales organization, which was spread around the world. So I did what I always do when I get involved with a new business. I throw myself in hammer and tongs. I traveled. I got to meet people. And I remember this very clearly. Every week, I went up to French's Forest, which is where the company's headquarters were, and spent a day or half a day with the CEO and just listened to him talk about what his aspirations were, where he wanted to take the company, and in that process learned more and more about the business. And this took a number of years, and he was the classic entrepreneurial founder of the business Mm -hmm. and the major shareholder. Right. And both internally and externally, there was very little difference between him and the company. People perceived him to be the business. After a few years, I realized that the thing that was holding them back was him. Then it took a little longer to figure out what to do about that. And we were fortunate enough that we brought back into the company, there were three owners when they listed, and uh, we brought one of them back in 2010, I think. The other owner at the time of listing said to me, Aram is his name. He's a difficult guy to deal with. He's you know strong-willed, but he knows how to make money, and we should absolutely bring him back into the business. And I'm sure that he's matured over the 10 years he's been outside the company. And I had never met Aram at that point. So we bought his business. He came back in. Oh, you, bought, you bought his business to bring him in, did you? Yeah. Okay, right. And along with that, we got a group of people, most of whom are still with us, one of whom is now another director on the board and the the CTO for the company. Mm -hmm. And um, for the next year, I I kept up my routine of going up to French's Forest and talking to the CEO, and I didn't really get to know Aram. But um, we decided at the end of that year to move to Shanghai. And, um, you know, this was a company that still wasn't making any money, still had all of this potential. And Aram suggested that we really needed to get out of Australia for a couple of reasons. One, it was a high-cost environment. We had an excellent source of engineers in um, Eastern Europe and particularly the Ukraine. Yeah, right. But we just could not get visas for them from the Australian government. And third, we thought that our customers would move their design teams to China, where most of the manufacturing was. So we decided to move to Shanghai. And uh, at the time we moved to Shanghai, I realized, well, if Aram has come in and been influential enough to convince the chief executive that we should move 25 Australians and their families to Shanghai, then I better get to know him. So 
at that point, instead of driving to French's Forest every week for a day, I flew to Shanghai for a week every six weeks or so and got to know Aram. Didn't take long, but there was the same tension that existed when Aram left the company after the listing sort of reappeared, and the three of us agreed that I would try to be the middleman between the principal founder and Aram because we thought that tension was good for the business because Aram was very much focused on running the business profitably. But there came a point where this fear that I had a, that the chief executive was the problem reached a point where I knew it was now or never, and I said that to Aram. And so we had a very fateful decision that uh, he needed to be removed. And because the Constitution said that if he were removed as chief executive, he would also lose his seat on the board. So we did that in October of 2012. It was a big call because everybody assumed, regardless of whether they liked him or not, that without him, the company would fall over. But I knew that we would take off with him out of the business. And that's exactly what happened. And so the board met that afternoon and we committed to ourselves. There were um, five of us around the table that we would focus on restoring value to shareholders, to delivering printed circuit board design tools that our customers wanted to buy and not do anything else because up until then we were involved in all kinds of interesting distractions. And lastly, that we would increase revenue by at least 10% because we knew there was latent demand and we would hold our costs so that we increase costs at a lower rate than revenue. And this was um, something Roger Corbett did at um, Woolworths. And I'd always thought, geez, that's a very simple formula. Mm. If your revenue increases faster than your costs, it's pretty hard to go wrong. So I borrowed that for... Uh, Altium. And uh, you know, it didn't take very long at all. One of the things I'm not proud of is that in my first three years there, we managed to get the share price from a dollar to eight cents. And when it was eight cents, the entire company was worth $10 million. And, you know, the three of us could have bought it amongst ourselves. And that was a pretty terrible day for me. But from that low point, we have really gone from strength to strength. I tell people both inside Altium, but anyone who will listen to me, looking at the share price is a mugs game. Focus on what's important. And so we focused on restoring value to shareholders, increasing revenue faster than costs, growing revenue at 10%, and delivering products that our customers wanted to buy. Who are your customers and what is Altium? So Altium is a pure software business, same as Microsoft which is the obvious leader in office products, or Adobe, which is the leader in design products. We make a design tool for engineers to do the layout of printed circuit boards. So if you look around you in today's world, every product virtually has electronics in it, whether it's an automobile, any of the products you buy from Apple, this um, the microphone that we are using today is designed by an Australian company that uses Altium products to create these microphones. That's a shout out for you, Peter Friedman, if you're listening. Um, when Altium was started in the early 1980s, it was started because the founder didn't graduate from the University of Tasmania because he wanted to make some hardware. 
and he couldn't afford the tool to do the printed circuit board. So he said, well, I'm going to make that myself. And you know, he did what a lot of these young guys do. He sat down for a couple of weeks, and he wrote the code for the first version of Altium. And he did it in such a beautiful, elegant way that the um, code has lasted a long time, although it has been rebuilt beyond recognition. And what we sell today, of course, is very different from what he created in the first place. But the premise was that the software should be available to the individual engineer anywhere in the world. It should be easy to use and affordable. And that has been our mantra ever since, so that we are the easy-to-do business company with an easy-to-use product, and our principal customer is the individual engineer, whether he or she is working for himself or in a very large company working with other engineers doing very complicated products like you know, building an Airbus. What is the state of play of technology in Australia? Well, Australia has always been a country of technology users. So when Apple comes out with a new product, Australians, you know, right there, first cab off the rank, wanting to use it. We have been not very good at developing technology. We're a lot better than where we were when I first got involved with technology with the little CD-ROM company. But I, I would say that culturally, we don't have the environment that is in conducive to creation of technology. Being a small country in terms of population isn't an excuse because the primary industry is so valuable that it's hard to get away from agriculture or mining uh, or forestry. And for some reason in our universities, going into engineering is just not as interesting as going to law school. And I'm not suggesting that being a lawyer isn't a valuable profession, but being an engineer is an equally valuable profession. Now, you talked about the dynamics setting up so that sort of hub in, or creativity. Do we need an innovation hub in Sydney or in Melbourne? Or because the Singaporeans are obviously capturing it north of Australia. No one's coming down. I have two minds of that. I work with a young guy who's been trying very hard to get an innovation hub in Sydney. So there is a role for government to play, yep. but industry has to also want to do it. And yep. so there has to be some equilibrium from desire of companies to coalesce around each other. For a while, I thought that would happen in North Ride, but it doesn't seem to have really taken off there, mm, although okay. there are some very large local and foreign companies. And we're beginning to see a hub around Martin Place yep. in the CBD. And with any luck, the plans for the new central station precinct will have a, a place for technology. And I, I've certainly observed in Manhattan, in New York City, a place that I know very well from a long time ago, the area that I used to work in in the garment district is now an absolute center for technology, and they call it Silicon Valley in New York. And in fact, um, Altium has purchased a very fast-growing business that was started there. So I think there is an opportunity in Australia to have a locus of technology. Another challenge in Australia is this thing that has come out of colonialism, I guess, where we, if we have one in Sydney, we have to have one in Melbourne. If we have one in Melbourne, we have to have one in Brisbane. And for the size country we are, it wouldn't hurt to have sort of a decide, well, where are we going to put the technology hub and then gravitate to that, which happened naturally in the U.S. 
around Stanford and Silicon Valley. And that doesn't mean there haven't been other hubs. There's a very big one uh, around Route 128 in Boston and Massachusetts. There's the one in New York that I mentioned. But if we could decide where we'd like it to be in Australia, that would be a benefit. And so if there's government funding, I think that's how it should be targeted. Well, that's what I was going to ask you next, Sam, because part of that story of our team is that you guys moved yes. from Australia to China. Is that just going to be the tale of woe for everybody starts up in Innovation Australia? I don't think so, because at the time that we moved, 98% of our revenue was outside of Australia because there's very little hardware designed and produced in Australia. And we sell all of the obvious players, whether it's... um Cochlear or the companies that are associated with the military, uh, the submarines. In fact, our market share in Australia is probably our, the highest of anywhere in the world, but it's only 2% of our revenue. So for us to be overseas, I think, was a, a natural consequence of following our customers. If you were going to make, wave your magic wand and go and see the prime minister next week, what would you ask for? We're going to build this community. I guess I would suggest to him that it would be helpful for Australian government to try to work together around a unified policy across the country. And I know it would be very hard to say to state governments, let's pick one. But in the end, that would be the best uh, thing to do. If you're sitting in uh, New York or London or Shanghai thinking about Australia, you don't want to be having to decide whether it's Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane would be helpful if we could decide that. Sam, I've got someone, you're a person who travels the world regularly. Can you sort of give the, uh, the audience some insight? What are you seeing in the pace of change in technology in, say, in China, US, and maybe even India? China, where um, I have some experience, but it's now a little dated, the pace of change is breathtaking. In fact, it's impossible to grasp if you don't actually see it, um, because the technology change is, is sort of similar to the overall changes that are happening in, in China, where cities get built almost overnight. The movement of mass migration of people from the country to urban centers you know, is happening very quickly. Uh, and uh, China is a great consumer of technology and becoming an incredibly good producer of technology. The United States, um, for all of its flaws, has maintained its position um, really as the global center for technology and as a magnet. Um, It's still attractive for young engineers, whether they're from the Philippines or China or India or uh, Britain, Israel, to come uh, to the U.S. very often for an education, but also to work in an environment where um, the buzz is just palpable. And the in Silicon Valley and in New York and Route 128 in Boston, you know, there are a lot of other companies, so the connection between businesses is fast, easy, and it just leads to more innovation. Now, you know, the seamier side of capitalism and that rapid development of technology can be seen in the challenges that companies like uh, Google and 
Facebook are having now with yeah, right. uh, regulators. Yeah. Um, but I think the benefits of enabling competition are far far outweigh the challenges. And whilst I'm an absolute supporter of appropriate government regulation, um, it doesn't have you know this idea that we should break up Google somehow to me isn't really a a starter. You're a director. Yes. And you know what's happening in this country and how boards are structured. Is there enough understanding of where the technology is and is there enough discussion in the boardroom about the impact of technology? Well, it's hard for me to talk about this um, with any perspective anymore because having made that decision that I should do things that I want to do, I am now limit my... Uh, corporate roles to the technology industry, so the companies that I'm involved with are pure technology companies. My sense um, from listening to colleagues is that you'd be hard-pressed to find a boardroom that doesn't have a reasonably high level of awareness of the need to be um, Tech, you know, have uh, an understanding of technology, and particularly technology in the way that it um, impacts that particular company's business. I think cybersecurity is one area where most companies today uh, have a very high level of awareness that this is an issue that they need to be um, up to speed and need to have programs in place as to how to deal with uh, cybersecurity threats. What about AI, Sam? Well, again, it, it's an area that I'm is probably over promoted, um, but its potential is possibly under recognized. So I think AI um, in various formats will be um, ubiquitous, and I guess the easiest way to talk about that, um, and also the best example of what some of the limitations are, is that if if you buy a book on Amazon, you will get constant reminders about buying something else that their algorithms have suggested that you might be interested in. But usually, they're no better than another book by the same author. Or if you bought a uh, a book about um, detectives, then you get suggestions about other detectives. So you don't really need AI to do that. And uh, so I think that's both the um, benefit, but also the current limitations of what uh, AI can do, but the, the in in the, our work at Altium, you know, we're deeply involved in software for the automotive industry, and the ability to run a car without a driver exists today, and that's okay. all AI, and that's all algorithms and programming the software in a car to know what to do if something jumps in the front of the car and how to tell whether it's a, a, a pedestrian or just a new piece of newspaper being blown across. So um, I think a- AI will come naturally through technology in, in the same way, you know, 25 years ago, if you were sitting in a boardroom, did you need to be aware as to whether you should be buying uh, WordPerfect or Microsoft Word? Well, probably not. Um, and and that stage of technology was adopted by companies just as a normal course of doing business, and I think AI will be the same thing. I don't think if you're running a, um, a non-technology company, you need to be worried that you're not creating AI inside your business. 
we talked about when you first arrived back, back home from being overseas and no one valued your international experience. You're chair of boards. Do you look for international experience? Do you look for that international mindset now? That depends on 3P Learning, which is an education company based here. We absolutely uh, value that because roughly half of our business today is outside of Australia and having executives who understand what it's like to live and work and compete in whether it's Europe or the United States is extremely important. So for me, uh, I do value it and certainly you know, my colleagues uh, in that particular company do as well. Sam, where do you see the Australian economy going? Well, I I'm, um, tend to be optimistic, um, both about the Australian economy and the, the uh, global economy. I think um, here it, we, we would help ourselves if we could um, move more into the, the modern um, industrial age, so encouraging our university graduates to go into uh, the software. We don't. We don't have to think that we can, you know, create uh, a company that's going to build automobiles, but we can build um, software that supplies the automotive industry, and uh, you know, be proactive. If we did that, we would be doing ourselves a favor. Um, I I think we need to give more than lip service to much more direct engagement, particularly with Asian markets. Um, Mm -hmm. We do have, um, I think, some natural advantages. I mean, I appreciate that it's a eight or nine or ten hour plane ride to get to um, any of the large Asian uh, markets is even to get to Jakarta is six hours, but it's a lot easier than going from either. London or Paris or uh, Berlin or from San Francisco or New York. So it's a natural advantage for us and we should take advantage of it. You mentor people, Sam? I do on both a a formal basis. I I work with a a small um, company called McCarthy Mentoring and uh, take on an assignment from time to time. But I also view my job as... um, chairman as being a mentoring for the chief executive and so uh, uh, it's quite a um, important relationship and one that uh, I think it it wouldn't be healthy to be the best friend of the chief executive uh, but it's equally not healthy not to have a friendly relationship and one of um, I would say a, a equal exchange of views and experience. And I feel that I learn as much from chief executives as they learn from uh, me. But the advantage I have is that um, it's been a long time since I've worked with a chief executive who's older than I am. So I usually have the benefit of um, experience and uh, I, I really enjoy you know, having a conversation to, um, because for being a chief executive, is it's a tough gig. Yeah. You, you have nobody to talk to. Yeah. And, you know, all of the executives that report to a chief executive are c- constantly 
uh, buttering him or her up and you know trying to demonstrate how you know great they are but in the end uh, the, the chief executive is in a very lonely position and if I can be a sounding board to help uh, the CEO come to grips with a, a business problem then you know, then I'm doing my job and, and what about the uh, the non-exec directors out there who want to think about all those thinking about becoming non-exec directors what advice would you give well, I do. I tell them what I learned, which is understand what you're good at, understand what you want to do, and particularly in this for younger people, the biggest advantage a director brings to the boardroom is experience and the ability to help a company look at a challenge or a problem and come up with a solution that they might not have been able to without. The directors. So, um, you know, for a lawyer, obvious um, benefits, but I would advise lawyers don't think you're in the boardroom as the lawyer. Be in the boardroom as a director and have a view on all of the things that the, the board has to deal with. I think the biggest um, problem uh, for aspiring directors is for um, either former chief executives or executives who've had big jobs and are used to pulling the levers because yeah, right. directors have no levers to pull other than the one that holds the trap door that sits underneath the CEO. And you really don't want to pull that one uh, very often and, and uh, really never is the best way to use that particular lever. So a, a director has to rely on the ability to uh, mount a, a case, an argument, and also be comfortable that if the um, management team decide to do something else, that that's okay. Now, if what they if they do something else that starts to look disastrous, well, then you can yank them back in. But um, the boardroom is not a place for telling people; it's a place for um, encouraging people and, and collegial work. And has it been as fulfilling as you hoped? Yes, I think um, beyond my wildest dreams, if I'm um, honest with myself. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and for a number of reasons. I mean, it's, it's by any measure where I've had my greatest success, both professionally and personally. But I feel as though it's the place where I've made the most contribution and been able to, you know, you know if I look at Altium, it's been an enormous success by any measure. And I've been at the heart of it for a little over a decade. And so whilst, you know, any director who thinks that the board is more important than the management team needs to have their heads examined. Right. The management team carries the load day in and day out. But directors do contribute, and I feel that in the Altium journey, I've had a, a role to play, and it's been enormously gratifying. And if you were to look back all those years ago, that young Sam Weiss starting out after leaving Harvard and getting his first role in retail, what advice would you give? absolutely to think about what you want to do with your life and pursue that. Don't just wait for the phone to ring. On that, Sam, thanks for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to No Limitations.